Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Roy Wood Jr. And to honor Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're revisiting a beyond-the-scenes episode about the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Daily Show writer Randall Otis, and we discuss how conservatives have a habit of citing MLK to score a variety of political points. Some even use his words to undermine anti-racist education and critical race theory. We also discuss the commercialization of the holiday and how to properly honor Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. I'm looking at you. I better not see y'all at no MLK Mattress Day sales. Have a listen. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes. This is the podcast that goes deeper into segments and topics that have originally aired on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. I am Roy Wood Jr., per as usual. This podcast, you know, you know what Beyond the Scenes is like? This is like when you order a milkshake and they make too much milkshake and they give you that little extra bit of milkshake. You know how like they give you the milkshake and then they give you the cup they made the milkshake in. It's got a little bit of a corner. That's a southern measurement of liquid. They give you a little extra corner of milkshake. It's two milkshakes for the price of one. That's what this podcast is like. We are overflowing with informational goodness that might give you a brain freeze. Now, in honor of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther the King Day, we are taking a look at the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the appropriation of his message, his influence in today's pop culture, and all things of that nature. Today, I'm joined by Daily Show writer Randall Otis. Randall, as always, great to have you on. How you doing, Pimpin? I'm doing good, you know. Uh, got COVID, so I don't have to worry about that for another month, at least. Uh, well, you know what they time. say, Randall? You're not a real New York City stand-up comedian if you haven't caught COVID. So, welcome to the party, pal. I'm also... <laughs> I'm also joined by New York Times bestselling author of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and also Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. He is a historian and the director of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research, Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Professor Kendi, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm, I'm still... Still running from, from COVID like it's the NYPD, but I'm trying. Well, if it's anything like the NYPD, eventually it will stop you for questioning. There's exactly. no avoiding it. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we get into the topic at hand today, which is Dr. Martin Luther Reverend the King and the way a lot of people cherry pick pieces of his message to fit their narrative 
you have dedicated your life to trying to educate and get people to understand. Here's how we correct. Here's how we reverse this terrible cancer on this country. What the hell do you do to relax, man? What is your, <laughs> what is like, you know, people, you know, Randall, you know, how people always talk about what's your spa routine? What's your woosa? What does Professor Kendi do to unwind and just take a breath from this? So that the sangria helps uh, <laughs> each night. <laughs> um, I think I also try not to take things personally. And so certainly when people are degrading black people, I don't take it personally as if there's something wrong with, with me or people like me. I, I recognize them as a problem. But even when people are personally attacking sort of me and my work from bad faith, I also just try not to take it personally and try to f be focused, you know, in transformation. So when we talk about Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday and the fact that it's now a national holiday, is it, is, are, they, are they observing it yet in Arizona or are we still 49 states counting? <laughs> I don't know. Like everyone knows that I have a dream speech and that's the one that's kind of the, it's the most quoted of all of his many, many quotables, but that was only a small part of his complex legacy. Um, I'll, I'll start with you, Professor Kendi. What parts of Dr. King's legacy, in your opinion, are often overlooked? Well, I mean, even if you take the ML, the I have a dream speech and, and the line that is often quoted that, that King's dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. People disregard what he said directly before that line and directly after it, which in which he lamented that his dream is being thwarted by vicious racists uh, in places like Mississippi, which are sweltering with the heat of oppression. Can you imagine if, if I said that today, right? You know, that that's a problem, but, but then somehow, and so I think there's so much of, of, of King's sort of legacy, the fact that he simultaneously recognized uh, racism and spoke out about racism as the problem, but then also recognized how racism itself wasn't just sort of harming black people, it was harming America, it was harming democracy, and it was dividing people. And he wanted to bring people together and he saw anti-racism as, as, as a unifying sort of uh, praxis. The way you've just so eloquently explained that, hey, do you know, right before that line and right after that line, he said some other stuff you should look into. Why yeah. are people, why do people cherry pick that? Why are people in denial about the other parts of who Dr. King was? Like he was against the Vietnam War. Why is that never brought up? I mean, it's, it's striking. I mean, you know, they, not only was King against the Vietnam War, but when he came out against the Vietnam War, I believe April 4th, 1967, he stated in a speech that the United States government is the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of this earth. <laughs> and, and you know, you know, again, he was very clear about even the relationship between imperialism, military sort of warfare, uh, human division, you know, and racism. And, and I, I think I'm, I'm personally sort of bothered just because he said so much more than that I have a dream speech than that single line. But we, of course, miss that because we try to, people try to use King uh, to justify 
their own not racism or that we should be race neutral as a nation, which I'm still trying to figure out what that even means. What I would love to do is play you a clip of conservatives who have appropriated MLK's message. Let's just let's just let's just listen to a run of conservatives quoting uh, Dr. King. Dr. King would not participate in a Black Lives Matter protest. The great MLK said that you have a moral obligation to object to unjust rules and rules that make no sense. One of my favorite quotes from Dr. King was, now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. You think of how he changed America. He inspired us to change through the legislative process to become a more perfect union. That's exactly what President Trump is calling on the Congress to do. Today, I'm asking my colleagues to remember the words of the legendary, the great leader in this country, Dr. Martin Luther King, who once said the time is always right to do what is right. And I just wanna leave you with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that we must learn to live together as brothers or we will perish together as fools. Thank you. Critical race theory is a Marxist doctrine Uh that rejects the vision of Martin Luther King Jr. Critical race theory goes against everything Martin Luther King has ever told us. Don't judge us by the color of our skin. And now they're embracing it, right? They're going backwards. He's kind of like everyone's um, dead, like my black friend is like this dead man who you can make say anything, (laughs) right? And with the thing about, you know, he has this huge body of work in this entire life it's kind of like if someone maybe this is a poor analogy but it was like oh i'm like oh do you know outcast you know the group outcast like oh yeah hey yeah shake it like a polaroid picture i'm like yes but even one within the song hey yeah you're misunderstanding that the entire song is incredibly sad and about the ability of love to last but there's also other songs outcast has made you know that's much deeper and more poignant than hey yeah so randall as a writer of the daily show you have what I consider to be the most difficult job in the building, which is to take sadness and make it funny. And so when you when you all were researching this piece and you start digging up all these wonderful, wonderful factoids on Dr. King, you know, and how the FBI, you know, they tried to destroy him with wiretaps and they called him playing crazy audio. They told him he should kill himself, suggested suicide. But then the FBI's Twitter account gives Dr. King a shout out on MLK Day. How do you all in the writer's room juggle the gravity of the situation versus the need to still be able to infuse humor into this topic? Well, I guess it's, for me, it's kind of like just focusing on one, the honesty of the situation, which is, I think like, if, I think if you just basically look at the reality of what you just said, you know, they tried to have this man killed and then are celebrating him on his face is absurd and heightened to a level that is almost hard to comprehend. And it's kind of in a way with that, kind of like the Trump problem, like when something is so ridiculous, how do you heighten that reality? (laughs) Um, And part of it is to, I guess, I like focus on like some of the reactions of the serious things. So if something's like incredibly serious, incredibly potent, incredibly important, it may be hard hard to joke about that thing in and of itself, but the deflections off of that topic can be somewhere you can go. And that's usually where I find a lot of humor. So people's reactions to what the FBI has said is a good source of humor. So it's like kind of like, um, it's hard to stare directly into the sun, 
but you can get the rays off what the sun provides. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, Professor Kindy, the, the thing that I guess is so amazing to me about Dr. King is that he is the one that we're all taught. So I'm a product of the Birmingham city school system. Birmingham is a, about a 75, 80% black city. All the city schools are predominantly black. Teachers are predominantly black. Taught a lot of blackity blackness. We did a lot of field trips to blackity black stuff. Yet when I look back in reflection on everything, it was a black school system, but it was for sure a white board of education, a white state board of education. And when I look at everything that we were taught, we were just taught the basic hits. You were lucky if you found out about Marion Anderson. Like they they taught you, I always call it suit brother and a flute brother. You would learn a black person that plays an instrument and a black person who wore a suit. They didn't teach you about anybody else. How did Dr. King become the one that was synonymous with the civil rights movement when there are so many other figures that did things to move the black race forward. And like, how do we make for a more well-rounded civil rights education in this country? Like, can't we misquote other people other than that? Why Dr. King the only one we misquote? Abernathy says some dope shit too. I mean, I think there's probably two reasons without getting in too much trouble. I think the, the first is, is that, I mean, I think King certainly was an incredibly pivotal figure during during the civil rights movement and during the movement itself captured much of the media narratives around civil rights when in many cases there were other people who were sort of leading the way uh, you know whether we're talking about even the montgomery sort of bus boycott which was largely organized by women and, and it was more mainly domestics uh, who were boycotting of course king sort of became one of the premier sort of media figures and, and so I think there's that. Then I think the other reason is because how they frame King. So they frame King as Mr. Nonviolence. They sort of want to essentially, just as during the civil rights movement, they want to frame King as nonviolence, Malcolm X as violence, which are of course both flawed. Um, and and then they want to, to frame King as an assimilationist, that he was essentially uh, seeking to integrate into superior white America. And you black people, that's what y'all are supposed to be doing when that's also false. So I think the way in which they frame King also, you know, is, is a reason why I think they, they're, they're, they're misrepresenting him as opposed to somebody else. Now, I'm curious, kind of like with the they you're talking about, is can it be kind of sourced back to some type of specific group or movement to try to edit the history of MLK, or is it more of like a broader, just general social movement among people? Well, I mean, one of the ways we could understand the last 50 years is there has been efforts to essentially create race neutrality. This, the, 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 the you know, particularly uh, you know, Americans who once were uh, champions of separate but equal, who were segregating and supporting racial segregation, who were opposing sort of busing, who were supporting the underfunding of, of, of those majority black schools that, that Roy talked about, um, and, and using very explicit ideas about black people 
uh, to justify them, by the 1970s, those very same forces were saying, oh, we're no longer segregationist, but we're committed <laughs> to racial neutrality. Because what happened is by the 60s, you, you had activists who were like, okay, we have all this inequality, now we need to eliminate it. And they were like, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, even though these people need more, if we, if we allocate resources based on need, that's quote, reverse discrimination. <laughs> and so in many ways, those very people are, are, are also the people who are trying to, to really, as I wrote in a piece recently in The Atlantic, engage in the second assassination of Martin Luther King. So to that article, the Atlantic article, the second assassination of MLK, you said that, quote, King's nightmare of racism is being presented as his dream. Is what happening right now in this country, is this Dr. King's nightmare? Like, what do you think when you see MLK's words appropriated in order to serve these various political narratives? No, I, I, I think people forget that by 1967, a year before he was assassinated, King stated that in many cases, my dream has turned into a nightmare. And, and one aspect of, of that nightmare was by 1967, you had so many, particularly young people, but even parents and educators who were pressing for, for instance, African-American history. And there was all sorts of opposition to that. Uh, and, you know, King actually in a book in 1967 wrote the history books, which have almost completely ignored the contribution of the Negro in American history, have only served to intensify the Negro sense of worthlessness and to augment the anachronistic doctrine of white supremacy. And so King was clearly a supporter of anti-racist ed education, of what's now called critical race theory. But what's ironic is they're using King to oppose the very thing he supported <laughs> in his own written writings. <laughs> Randall, what what role, like if we, if we talk about this idea of King being the only one that is quoted, what role do we think entertainment plays in it because when we think about when we talk about like solutions right all right mm -hmm. if if the real shit ain't being taught in the schools and from the looks of it it ain't gonna get taught anytime soon depending on how these midterms go then is it on the parents to start because you know i have a five-year-old and they're already learning about people in kindergarten that they didn't touch on until fifth or sixth grade with me so in my head i'm doing the calculations they going to run out of black people to teach him about by the second grade. Is it on the parents to supplement that education? And also, you know, kind of like what, what, what role does Hollywood play? Because we go, oh, they quote MLK too much. But when you look at civil rights movies, that's the only one they love to green light. If we're going, and I'm going way, way back. I know it's a little different now, but if we're talking 20 to 30 years of black cinema, more often than not, it's just the hits that they cover. What role, Randall, do you think entertainment plays in trying to re-educate people? I think it has an important role. Um, like, clearly, like, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah came out recently. That's probably the first time a lot of Americans probably even heard the name Fred Hampton, you know, or even had the Black Panthers portrayed in a way that wasn't as a terrorist group. Like, I grew up <clears throat> in the South. I grew up in Florida, which you can say is not the South, whatever. South. Um, that's super South. That's that's extra strength South. It's it's high fidelity South. And I remember when I was in school, like I 
learned the lost cause theory of the civil war and like the state's rights theory about the civil war like that's what i was taught and it was through my parents teaching me outside of school about the history of more people than just mlk and george washington carver every single year where i got to learn about these people and so that's me as a black person like being kind of denied access to my history or just the history of a lot of people from this country of black people and so i can't even imagine what it's like if you don't come from a black family and even if you do come from a black family a lot of them may not take the time to teach you about these things or maybe they weren't even educated themselves about it so i guess in that way entertainment's important and I think in terms of like people just you know, making another movie about MLK and another movie about MLK is just probably in a way it's one that it's easy, you know, people already understand who this guy is. And the other ones may be harder to green light because it's like, look, no, it seems like self-perpetuating, you know, it's like only learn about MLK, you only make stuff about MLK. So other people only learn about MLK, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, after the break, um, let's let's stay in Florida. Let's talk about your governor, Ron DeSantis. and. <laughs> His latest attempts to ban critical race theory uh, down there in Florida. This is Beyond the Scenes. We'll be right back. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are talking about conservatives and their loving relationship with Martin Luther King, but only the good part. Just give me a little bit of what he said that I agree with. That's the part that I like. Professor Ibram Kendi, Ron DeSantis, down there in Florida. Um, this man, who? So he's introduced a Stop Woke Act while quoting MLK in the middle of introducing the act. <laughs> you think about what MLK uh, stood for. He said he didn't want people judged on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. You listen to some of these people nowadays, they don't talk about that. Is this increased wave of criticism against critical race theory? Is this a direct result of heightened support for Black Lives Matter? You know, like, cause I feel like, you know, in every movement, I feel like every time black people make some level of progress, there is a degree of backlash. Is what happening with critical race theory, is this you know heightened because of support for Black Lives Matter nationally, or is it, as MLK referred to it, the white backlash? I think it's, it's both, I don't think it's a coincidence that this manufactured critical race theory uh, sort of mania happened in 2021, a year after the series of demonstrations you know around the country in the summer of 2020 tens of millions of people you know marched and, and demonstrated against police violence and racism and by june of 2020 one poll was stating that as many as 76 percent of americans were recognizing that racism exists and was a major problem also the majority of white americans for the first time on record were also expressing a recognition of racism, you know, and that, that problem. And 
and and so I think that of course there was a very targeted effort to undermine that to say no racism isn't the problem those people who are saying racism is the problem are the real problem <laughs> but I also think that studies show that specifically Trump's base uh, when you when you compare them to white Democrats or even Republicans who don't necessarily like Trump they specifically are more likely to believe that white people are the primary victims of racism or that white people are being subjected to racism. So the whole sort of mania around critical race theory is that it's harming white children, <laughs> that that white children, <laughs> you know, are basically- My child's told... not an enemy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that our teaching force, which is what 80% white is telling white children that they are evil. I mean, that's the sort of idea because, and there's a, there's a recognition that that idea is very prominent and well-believed and will be well-received, you know, particularly among Trump's base. Randall, being from Florida, what would you say is the ratio of knowing what you know now about blackness and your identity and the journey of our ancestors, what percentage of that did you learn in home versus learning in Florida schools? <laughs> All, What's the ratio? Very little. Uh, <laughs> one to, I don't know, there's probably a number that hasn't been invented yet and we'll get there one day. That's what I would say is pretty much almost all in the home where I learned about blackness and the history of black America uh, up until I which is I left Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to had to get the hell out of there. I feel like the hypocrisy in this is so perfect because like how can the right hold like two conflicting mantras, right? They go, we love MLK and racism is gone, but also let's ban all of MLK's books because what I hate about this is the revisionist history of they, the great Dr. Martin Luther King, who we must all honor. 70% of y'all hated him back in the 60s. They did a poll. First off, Professor Eram, I didn't know that they did polls on civil rights leaders. He <laughs> 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 was like 66% of people. <laughs> that, that King had an approval rate. <laughs> Yeah, like 66% of people hated him. They did not rock with what he did. I just don't understand, you know, because like when you look at what's happening now with like like this Tennessee group, Moms for Liberty, right? They tried to ban uh, Francis E. Ruffin's book on Martin Luther King and the March on Washington. How can you love MLK, but also want to ban his teachings? You also have here, you know, Professor Kendi, you have Pennsylvania's uh, Central York School District uh, banning Brad Meltzer's I Am Martin Luther King Jr. And then two years before that, which you got to give them credit down there in Georgia, you know, they were ahead of the curve on banning some of these books before it became a, you know, before it became nationwide. Georgia was doing it loud and proud after Stacey Abrams almost took the state from them. The Columbia County School District in Georgia banned Nick Stone's Dear Martin. Is the CRT debate, is this just another moment of... Americans being able to deny what happened? Like, what is the fear and just, what is, there we go. What are you fucking afraid of? What are people afraid of if we dare to turn over these rocks of the past? What motivates this hatred of just facts? We're not even asking for policy. That, that's what's so wild about this shit. This is not a policy debate. This is just, hey, 
can we talk about the time that thing happened to us that time in history? <laughs> well, I mean, and, and even, you know, going back to, to, to Georgia banning Nick's books and, and Nick is, Nick Stone is a, is a native of Georgia. So, the, you know, a native of <laughs> outside of Atlanta. So it's, but I, I think in many ways, as it relates to race, this generation and really every generation of, of Americans have have not necessarily lived in reality. So like us trying to drag people into reality, uh, people imagine that they, they're, they're, they're trying to be, that we're trying to sort of drag them, uh, you know, into something surreal. And, and for the first few decades of this country's history, it was widely believed slavery was a necessary evil. By the 1830s to the 1860s, it was widely believed slavery was a positive good. We all know, of course, for a hundred years, it was believed that, you know, Birmingham was perfectly separate and equal. <laughs> and, and of <laughs> course, for the last 50 years, people have imagined we live in a post-racial society with racial disparities all around us. So people don't really know how to even imagine their world, even to imagine themselves uh, without this denial, uh, you know, without living in this world of make-believe as, you know, as one writer called it. I can't imagine even your, I mean, in the past few years, we learned that a lot of people don't even think science is real or sickness when it is infecting them actively. <laughs> I can't imagine how difficult it must be to have people believe in racism or the effects of our racial history. And so that's kind of something I wanted to say. And, and Randall, really quickly, I think generally people don't believe in science, but they really don't believe in racial science. They they just think I'm just up here talking, <laughs> you know, just one day I just decided to start talking about race and racism, that I wasn't trained to study this, that this isn't my expertise, that the people are sharing their views and I'm sharing my views. And that's what really, really makes it hard. Dr. Kendi, when you speak and I know and I'm and I'm sure that you are brought in to talk to a lot of in, in a lot of capacities to people that may agree with you and want to learn more. But Talk to me a little bit about the confrontational side of this, because you have the data, you've done the studies, you have done the research. You're not just someone who was awakened recently and put like you're one of the few people that 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 I'll talk to in this podcast who I believe has read every book that is behind you right now. Like, <laughs> you know, I've you know, you know, we started doing these shows from home. People started, you know, decorating their bookshelf, arranging their books by color. You ain't read them books. You're arranging them by color. That's the first sign. <laughs> that I know you ain't read them. Talk, talk to me about the confrontations that happen. Do you get confronted by people like after seminars and like even pre-COVID where there was a little, little bit more face-to-face where someone wants to challenge you and go, yo, man, that's, you're full of it. Oh, that, I mean, that's, that's pretty regular. It was more so during COVID, um, before COVID, I should say. Um, but, but I mean, you know, I, I actually... You know, in my work, I tried to, to to talk about the differences between a producer of a racist idea, like a Donald Trump, and the consumer, you know, of a racist idea, someone who had been fed this, this lie that, let's say, the election was stolen by those voters and those black and brown voters in Atlanta or, you know, or Philadelphia. And when that consumer sort of then repeats that, uh, propaganda to me, I try to have that level of sort of empathy to think about that somebody sort of manipulated them 
into thinking this way, into thinking mm -hmm. that that's other people stole their election. And, and I think that empathy, knowing that none of us are sort of born with ideas that a particular group is dangerous or inferior or stealing election, you know, I try to just remember that when I'm confronted. And I try to really ask the person who's, who's claiming that they are not racist, I asked them, okay, so how do you define the term racist? If you swear you're not racist, <laughs> you must be yeah. able to define that term. And usually they can't. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go to break, then here, here's my last question. Where does America compare with other countries' educational systems when it comes to like confronting difficult parts of their history? Like, I've been told that Germany don't play that when it comes to Nazi history and the rewriting or the repositioning of what Nazis really were all about. Uh, how, do, how do other countries uh, confront their dark pasts in their history books? I actually think Germany is a great example. And I think many Americans are surprised to learn that German children as early as kindergarten, you know, are taught about Nazism, you know, and the Holocaust and about the truth of, of that sort of brutality and, and, and mass murder because there's a recognition that if, if young people learn about Nazism, if they learn about the ideas that's justified it, that they will be able to recognize that <laughs> and will be able to recognize that and prevent it from resurfacing. While, of course, in comparison to the United States, we're in denial even about how horrible slavery truly was. I mean, you still have U.S. Senators. You know, U.S. Senator Tom Cotton last year when he was blasting the 1619 Project insinuated that slavery was a necessary evil. Like in 2021. They had a home. They had a meal. They were safe. Tom Cotton wrote, as the founding fathers said, slavery was the necessary evil upon which the union was built. It's, it's always something. It's always something. After the break, let's, let's talk about the future. Let's get optimistic after the break. And figure out ways that we could infuse other MLK quotes into these people's mouths and figure out ways to properly honor uh, Martin Luther King's legacy. This is Beyond the Scenes. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk solutions. I found this interesting, Randall, that, you know, we have for decades fought for Martin Luther King Day, you know, and to have it be recognized and also sidebar for his face to not be put on club flyers to promote nightclub ignorance. Please stop it. Full stop. Sorry, white people this is a black. I'm just talking to the black people right now. OK, we're back. <laughs> this poster has a lot of people shaking their heads in disgust. It shows Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wearing a gold chain promoting a party called Freedom to Twerk. It was supposed to take place at this club, but it's been canceled. The owner says he's disgusted and there'll be no twerking here. In all of the fighting for MLK Day, MLK's family recently has called for no celebration 
of MLK Day without action on voting rights legislation. Is this an effective strategy to try to get people to honor him and provoke change? Or does this just give conservatives an out and just go, well, you don't want MLK Day? Sounds good to me. I, I, I guess to me, it, I, I, I appreciate the sentiment, but I maybe y'all do something different. I don't like do anything on MLK Day. I'm like, this is my day off. I, I, like, I don't know. Do y'all have like MLK Day fireworks or something? I just... Maybe I've been missing out for the past 29 years, but but I, I don't think we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we need to revamp how we think of Martin Luther King and how we teach him, but we should keep the day off, you know? And like, we shouldn't be tasteless with, you know, mattress sales uh, for black people or something, but it's like, let's keep the sale. Why not? I don't, keep I the don't, sale. but just as, okay, well, let's, let's, let's ask, Martin Luther King sale. let's ask Mr. Research here. Dr. Kendi, when you are out and you are shopping and you see them MLK 20% off prices on clothing, do you go out and buy something in honor of Dr. King? Like, how do you feel about the commercialization of Martin Luther King? Or is that just capitalism, which is a totally separate podcast episode? I mean, I, I think that the sad fact is almost everything has been commodified and, and you know, including some of our sort of greatest historical figures, you know, like King. And so, and that's really, as you stated, Roy, I mean, that's a function of capitalism. And and so I think that's that's a sort of a different type of issue. I think short of a sale on sniper rifles, I'm okay with the commercialization. Because at least, I, let me put it this way, Randall. I'm mm -hmm. not offended by it, if that makes sense. Like, I don't like it, but these are just stupid stores that are just going, what are y'all celebrating? Cool. Let me put that on a flyer next week to sell more sodas or sell more groceries. There will be some sort of, it, they won't call it a George Floyd sale, but it'll no. be some, I guarantee you mark my words, dog. Mark my words this summer. There's going to be some sort of unit unity sale or some shit. It, 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 it's, <laughs> It's, they're not going to call it George Floyd, but it's going to oddly be around just a little bit before Juneteenth. So not a Juneteenth, but in the ballpark of it. And I think that's where, you know, because like Juneteenth is a, is that, that's another perfect example, you know, Dr. Kendi, where y'all wasn't rocking with Juneteenth for real, for real. But then now it's, oh, well, we care about the blacks. So let's show them that we care. And now you get a day off for Juneteenth, which I'm happy to have. Uh, which I also full disclosure. I think Trevor Noah. What he give us off Randall two days for Juneteenth? I think so. We we got more than a day. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I understand where that comes from. It's not my favorite thing about Martin Luther King and the way he's been kind of whitewashed, and I guess in this in to this degree, you know, greenwashed. But you know, it it troubles me, but. I think there's far worse issues surrounding his legacy, which to that question, you know, Dr. Kendi, how do we properly honor MLK's legacy while also de-emphasizing him? Like, how do you exalt him and go, but also, you know what I mean? Like, you know what it's like? Again, if I'm going to use the outcast analogy, if I take Randall's outcast analogy, Dr. King is Andre 3000. But don't forget, Big Boy has some bars, too. I think maybe one of the ways is 
you know, if, if people want to talk about and know about King, we can sort of meet them where they are. So, okay, let's talk about, you know, Martin Luther King. Let's talk about Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the role Ella Baker played in the building of that organization. Or, And so we can use King to not only sort of describe his specific legacy and his message, but also to uh, teach about other sort of uh, historical figures uh, who worked with him, uh, who thought in the ways that he did, or even who thought differently. Um, and I think that's maybe an effective way to sort of honor King, to really sort of honor the whole movement and really honor the longstanding movement of Black people to be free. What do you think, and I and I, I hate this question, but I only hear white people asked it, so I'm gonna ask you as a Black person. <laughs> I'm gonna ask both of you. So Randall, what do you think Dr. King would have to say about these times that we're in right now? Oh, thank you, white, white Roy Jr. <laughs> um... No, like seriously, like if Dr. Yeah. King had a Twitter account, if he had a Twitter account, first off, do you think he would respond to trolls? I think he would. One, just because he'd be an old dude and he wouldn't really get technology. Like he'd, of course, he'd tweet important stuff, but then he'd be like, I got scammed by the Nigerian prince again. You know, like, <laughs> so there'd be, of course, that comes with age. It, it takes everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. But um, if he had a Twitter, I, yeah, I feel like he would respond to the to the day's events. And would it, because the, the way that you framed it, I guess, is like they would think, that everything is going on is bad. And I'd just be like, well, bro, if you actually do care, if this isn't just you <laughs> trying to like get in my mentions of today, I'd be like, read just two other speeches by him, just two other things, like read Letter from a Birmingham Jit, you know, and see how he thinks mm -hmm. about like white moderation or something like that. And just be like, just do the smallest amount of work possible. Dr. Kendi, if Martin Luther King was on MSNBC tonight in a four box arguing with two other conservatives and hosts <laughs> Joy Reid or Tiffany Cross, um, I'm just, just being silly, but like seriously, like because there's so much that's happening now that I feel like compares to his day. Like we talk about Karens calling the cops on black people. You don't think white women wasn't calling the cops on black folks when they was marching and they were in suits. What would what would Dr. King, that's a good one. What would he have to say about Rachel Dolezal claiming she's black? Or would he just be a <laughs> welcome to the movement kind of sort of black sister? I mean, well, King grew up in a black community, went to a black church, uh, went to a black college. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I, I actually would wonder what he would say about, about somebody who considers themselves transracial. Uh, but, I, but I also think you know, he would say, like tonight on Joy's show, he would say, as I stated in a, in 1963, the, the filibuster is a, is a tool of Jim Crow. And the fact that we have democratic uh, politicians who are refusing to do away with this tool of Jim Crow that I've literally fought my whole career. The fact that you have Republicans who are honoring me at the same time, they refuse to do away with what I've fought against my whole career, you know, is the height of hypocrisy. And who the hell used my voice for that Dodge car commercial? <laughs> I did not authorize. You it's tricked just so, me. It's just so fun to do his voice, man. It's just, I think that's another reason you quote him all the time, because it's fun. Yeah. We have gone beyond the scenes. We have done it. 
Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Randall Otis as well, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Of course. Right. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, Randall. Let me know when y'all get that racism stuff solved up there in Boston, <laughs> Dr. Kendi. I'll swing by. It's going to be a minute. <laughs> you know, we need to talk about that next time because they got the new mayor. Oh, yeah. Y'all got the new mayor. Oh, yeah. Got a minority yeah, mayor she's, and she's a woman. Michelle Wu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Thank you. All brother. right. Take care, y'all. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even if you get them in a back alley, we're there. He know Frank knows us. Stephen Colbert here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is our podcast for The Late Show with my producer, Becca. Uh, Becca, how long have you been producing this podcast? I've been producing this podcast for two years now. And your favorite thing about it? The extended moments, for sure. Right, because sometimes I'll interview like a big star for 25 minutes. We can only put like 14 minutes on air. Where can people get that? On The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert, wherever you get your podcasts. And who produces that? Uh, I, I help out. It's a team effort.